numbers and this is episode number 44 being up to speed and today i'm going to talk about being up to speed with what's going on in the format but also being up to speed in uh, modern horizons baldur's gate in order for you to be able to keep up with the super fast aggressive decks and what does it take which cards are important for that and um, uh, basically how you want to build your decks in order to utilize maybe colors that are not as popular as the other ones. But before we go into this, of course, a word from the sponsor, which I have. It's a real sponsor. It's not an imaginary sponsor. And it's actually a good one. It's uh, mtgazone.com. Um, they are a website that has plenty of um, articles about uh, strategy and constructed, but also limited. Um, I'm writing for them, so uh, there's going to be an article uh, loosely based on part of the previous seminar this time. Um, but also, uh, you got articles from J2S Josh, who is, uh, well, one of the better content creators that there are in terms of limited. Uh, there are articles from Eki, so uh, plenty of limited content to go around. And if you are playing not only uh, limited, but also constructed or commander, you will find uh, things for yourself. I mean, Paulo Vitor da Madarosa is writing for them. So, you know, there is some quality, not only me. Um, so hopefully you're going to give them a try. Not now. Wait for me to finish blubbing for the next hour and a bit. Uh, but after that, yeah, definitely give them a try. I think that uh, my last article um, on the big picture of this format was, I heard quite informative and I heard good things about it. I liked it. That's why I wrote it. So um, uh, you can check that out. And then hopefully tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, there's going to be a next one from me. But let's move to the seminar itself. Okay. The preamble today is about change in the formats. And I think that this is not a problem of Magic the Gathering. This is a general problem of humanity, is that we gain some kind of information. We learn it. We spend effort in learning that information. And then it's very hard to get off that information and update it with new situations as the facts change. It's been quite prevalent in history. You've seen the whole countries that get stuck to technology or philosophy that stopped working some time ago, but because of traditional ramifications, they stuck to it for way too long. And this was the reason why some countries that were absolute powers in uh, Renaissance, uh, Baroque and um, Enlightenment uh, waned because they did not jump into this new thing called industrial revolution. Um, there's been examples from all over the world of that happening. Uh, there's been examples from sports where some teams just stuck to the old strategies because they used to work 20 years before, but the world moved on and they stayed behind. And it's the case in Magic the Gathering. Formats changed, and especially that change is quite dramatic in the first two weeks of limited formats. And if you don't track that change, or at least don't give a cursory look at that change, uh, you might end up in a situation when you are doing things that were right a week ago, but are no longer that profitable. And this is the case in this format. I'm going to talk about it in a second, uh, but it's been the case in many other formats where you have a first week deck that is extremely powerful and potent and successful, and people start forcing it. 
And then there comes a moment where forcing that color stops being profitable, starts being a liability, but not everyone updates to that. Uh, my, there are also things that um, um, happen in Magic the Gathering where people get the idea about certain format um, based on something that happened, then that changes, but they still hold the grudge. And I think that the biggest example I've seen so far in, in, in Magic's history was Throne of, Throne of Eldraine, where in the olden days of bot drafts, for the first week and a bit, you could basically draft the Merfolk Secret Keeper deck. Merfolk Secret Keeper was a creature, an 0-4 for one mana, but it also had an adventure, mill four cards for also one mana. And you drafted six of those, and you just started milling people. Maybe you had Lucky Clover and you doubled the mill and you could very quickly mill people to death. And uh, it was not fun to play against it, but it was also very easy to draft and um, created a, a bunch of problems when basically lots of games were starting. Me, turn one, mill you for four. Opponent, island, mill you for four. And then whoever drew most of the Merfolk Seekler Keepers won. Now, this was the first 10 days maybe of the format. And after that, the bots were updated and you could basically get no single Merfolk Secret Keeper. But until today, you will still get the people that say, oh, Eldraine was a decent draft format, but bots ruined it for everyone because uh, you could just draft the Merfolk Secret Keeper deck. Because they never updated the information that Merfolk Secret Keeper became completely obsolete after 10 days. And then we played that format still for whatever, six, seven weeks. And there were different problems with it. Like you could force mono red almost in every single draft. And if you couldn't force mono red, then you forced mono white or mono blue. Uh, and these decks were also annoying, but uh, mono blue not based on secret keepers. Um, and yet no one remembers that, or very few people remember that part. Lots of people remember this Merfolk secret keeper situation because they never updated. They never changed their first opinion about the format. And it's super hard to uh, change your first opinion about the format. And I've seen it, I've seen it uh, set after set, like um, Midnight Hunt, first week, blue-black tempo was the best deck. And uh, it was a good deck until the end of the format. But I think that um, after the first two weeks, white, blue, and uh, blue-green were better decks in terms of win rate, um, easier to draft. Blue-green especially was severely underdrafted, and yet uh, people remember that you have to draft the black-blue zombies. Now, don't get me wrong. If you ended up in a pod where blue-black was um, uh, atrociously open, yes, you could have drafted a first week, let's call it, blue-black deck, and you could uh, definitely trophy with that. But those pods where you could draft blue-black without any limitations were a few and far between. And pods where you could draft blue-green quite plentiful. So, um, and blue-green had a higher win rate in the end because of that, because it was the color was more open. Again, lack of updating our knowledge uh, uh, led to that. And people who updated their knowledge and looked through those uh, maybe partial win rates of colors on 17 lands, excluding the first couple of weeks, they got their information uh, perfectly and they knew exactly what to look for and how to gain edge on, um, on their gameplay. So with that out of the way, we are actually going to talk about uh, a lot of those um, uh, cases from um, from him, uh, modern, from uh, Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate. Now, <clears throat> I told you that you need to update your information. When we had the first week data, um, two best decks by far were uh, white red and white black. And then 
white, green, and black, red were slightly lower by like 1% to 1.5 percentage points. Uh, black, green was somewhere in the middle between this and the struggling decks uh, in uh, blue, green, uh, red, green, and uh, uh, white, blue, and blue, black. And at the back, completely at the back, there was the, uh, the blue, red. So red bars are the win rates from the first week. And then I looked at the win rates from the second week, and there is a big change. Like um, if you look at the white red, first week win rate 60%, second week win rate 56.5%. That's a big drop, 3.5 percentage points. So basically it dropped from being like unparalleled uh, um, uh, winner of, um, of all the archetypes into being somewhere at the level of the first week's uh, black green. And you will agree with me that black green was an okay deck in the first week, but possibly not something that you would like hope to draft, something that you might be pushed into drafting. And, and, and there are some lanes where it can be successful. Um, white black also decreased by 1.5%. So less, slightly less uh, spectacular drop from around 59.5 to 58% uh, win rate. Um, and at the same time, Selesnya, which, uh, which was third, uh, went from 583 to 58.5% uh, win rate. So it actually improved, and this improvement is actually pretty significant because across the board, the 17 lands users' uh, win rate in the format dropped by around 0.7%. So if it increases despite uh, the average win rate dropping, uh, it means that um, uh, Selesnya improved by quite some uh, margin uh, compared to the first week. And then we have um, black-red, which dropped by 0.6, so that's, you know, that's the same as the general drop of the 17 lens users um, win rate. When they are, you know, after first week, usually 17 lens users are quite invested. They know things um, over the first week, people that are not as invested update their information and they, um, the edge of 17 lens players is dropping slightly. So uh, that drop in black red is basically could be explained by just general drop in, in, in win rates. Um, black green, the deck that I speculated last week might be the one where you can find better builds and, and increase the win rate. It actually slumped. There is a good explanation for that that I found, um, but it, it, it dropped by roughly two percentage points in their win rate from 56.3 to 54.3. Um, and then we have those bunch of the middle decks, which roughly lost as much as they would be expected to lose around 0.7, maybe 0.9 here, maybe 0. Uh, maybe, maybe four. 0.5 there, but basically they stay the same. There was one uh, deck that was a slight winner of this archetype uh, of this of this metagame shift, and that's blue black, which went from being second to last at um, uh, at 52.6 percent win rate to 54.8, so 2.2 percentage point at, uh, gain against the trend of 0.7 uh, across the board. So uh, this is actually an, an, a big increase. And as you can see, it went from being second to last into being roughly fifth archetype, so somewhere in the middle of the pack. Um, and blue-red uh, decreased further. The, this is the archetype that I think is almost unplayable in this format, unless you, unless you start with some kind of a bomb and you are very heavily red with blue being just a support color. So, Maybe maybe someone in the chat will figure out how to uh, draft blue red uh, successfully, but that still did not happen uh, as far as I know. So as you can see, there was a drastic change, and especially that drop in Boros is interesting because I can guarantee you 
that plenty of people will still think that Boros is the best deck because they operate based on the knowledge from the first week when Boros indeed was the archetype with the highest win rate. And also, even if you look at the 17 lens data right now, you will see that Boros is pretty high. You don't see that drop uh, drastically because first week is when the most games are played. That's why I definitely urge you, if you use 17 lands to analyze the metagame, especially later in the format, exclude first two weeks and look at the win rates of color pairs um, without those first two weeks. And then you will get a better uh, view of how the format is developing right now, because you will exclude those early days when people were still experimenting, trying things. And very often in those um, first days of the format, decks that are easy to build and based on powerful cards that are easy to evaluate in vacuum are going to have an edge and they will have a higher win rate that will decline as the format uh, progresses and evolves. Right, so why would we see this decrease? And first thing is the availability of the cards. And I calculated uh, that based on the you know data that you can get from uh, literally anywhere um, the, from 17 lands. So I looked at the card performance data and I calculated how many good cards from each archetype you will see more or less per draft. And how to do it? It's uh, relatively trivial. I looked at the ALSA, so average last seen as from the week one of each card in the uh, archetype. I focused on the good cards and uh, by good cards, I mean cards that have a win rate um, of uh, 56 or more um, in just each archetype. Um, and then based on that, I could calculate how many more or less of those cards you will see per draft pod, because I can recalculate if you see this on average as fourth card, how many of them you will see per draft. It's a rather straightforward calculation if you know the numbers behind uh, how many commons you see per you open per pod on average and so on. Uh, and what you can see is that every single color has fewer good cards available to you. You will also see that in this graph, I don't have uh, blue-red, because blue-red did not have a single good card. Like uh, MTM here, exactly that's the reason why blue-red is not there. Uh, there were just no good cards. And I thought it would be misleading to, um, to come up that, oh, look, blue-red didn't lose any good cards. Well, it didn't lose any blue cards because there wasn't any. Um, the biggest loser uh, of the first week is white-black. Um, but every single color combination lost. So blue, black, white, black lost around 3.7 cards per pod uh, from good cards that you will not see in a pod. This might seem small, but this may mean that if you on the week one ended up with 27 uh, decent cards in your um, in your pool, um, now maybe you will end up with 22, and that starts becoming problematic because then you have to play filler cards. Uh, you have to play less powerful decks, less coherent decks. Uh, and this across the board drop in good cards being seen uh, by uh, an average player during the draft is related to the fact that people are updating their pick orders in the first weeks. So people learned that Patriarch's um, um, Humiliation is a great card and that we can see in statistics that you will see many, much, much fewer of those than you did in the first week. People learned that the one mana unicorn is a good card. You will see fewer of those as well. And 
card after card, you see slight drops of a uh, slight increase in, in people's preference towards those cards, while people also learn that some cards are bad and they stopped drafting them. So you will see more of the bad cards, fewer of the good cards, and in general, it will impact the uh, possibility of drafting some decks. So as I said, white-black is the most, um, the one that decreased the most. Then we have white-green and white-red at around, uh, they lost around 2.8, 2.7 uh, cards per pod. Uh, Black-red and black-green lost uh, 1.9, 1.8. Uh, then we have uh, white-blue and blue-black, they lost around one card uh, per pod. And uh, red-green and blue-green lost little, but still a bit, so 0.4 cards or 0.3 cards. Uh, which means that you can probably draft relatively similar uh, red-green and blue-green decks um, as you did in week one. Um, but definitely you will not get as busted white-black and uh, white-green and white-red decks as you did in the week one. So this is the first information to be updated. But as, I can, as you could see from the previous graph, white-black, despite losing all those cards, did not lose as much, as much uh, equity in terms of win rate as white-red did, even though white-red lost fewer cards of those good cards per draft. Um, this has something to do with white-black being just deeper colors. You can lose three cards because both white and black are quite deep, um, while um, white is, of course, still deep in white-red, but maybe not to the same extent because white-red is much more aggressive, so not every one card goes uh, to the white-red shell. And red is a bit more shallow, so if you lose a couple of those uh, important red cards, you might not get their own playables, and you might not have those explosive stars that were making this deck into the um, uh, top archetype in the week one. So which particular individual cards were the biggest movers in terms of how people started picking them? And this is the change in ALSA between week one and week two. Uh, so these are all negative numbers. The bigger the negative number, the more people updated um, uh, started picking this card earlier. So two cards that um, uh, I foreshadowed in the previous slide uh, that um, became more popular with um, an average arena drafter is Patriarch's Humiliation and Steadfast Unicorn. Uh, they both are picked by one pick higher than they were in the first week. And then the next two cards at 0.74 picks um, um, higher and 0.64 picks higher are Genasi Rebel, Rouser and Soldiers of the Watch. Now, if you see that, Patriarch's Humiliation, Steadfast Unicorn, Genasi Rebel, Rouser and Soldiers of the Watch these are all staples of the white-red deck. And uh, this is, in my opinion, where this drop of the win rate comes from. It's basically, you won't see those uh, uh, super important, um, there's a fly somehow in the room. You won't see some of those uh, super important cards. Two of those are actually um, um, important uh, double team enablers and the double team again being a key mechanic for the white-red deck um, uh, and this, probably is what caused the hit. It's all early game, explosive start potential of the white-red has been hampered by quite a lot by people updating their pick orders um, uh, for those uh, important cards for the archetype. Then we see Guildsworn Prowler. I think that the card, you know, it's one of the probably two best black commons and it was picked quite late. People updated that order and Guildsworn Prowler was um, uh, less available in week two than it was in week one. Um, and this is around 0.6. We have like a whole bunch of cards around 0.6, 0.5 in Blessed Hippogriff, uh, Cobalt Wall color, color. Again, two cards that were pretty good in the white-red uh, white decks. 
we have a vampire spawn sepulcher ghoul. This is hurting the uh, white black uh, probably the most, but vampire spawn can hit uh, well can hit uh, generally multiple archetypes whenever black is involved. You probably are quite happy playing vampire spawn because it's amazing in racing situations. Uh, we also have um, flaming fist dust guard. Now the three one for two mana. Um, again, <clears throat> another card that white red would be quite happy playing multiples of. Um, and we have um, uh, sewer plague, uh, black removal. Again, it would fit in every black deck. That probably includes the uh, black green, and that might be the reason why black green uh, also dropped a bit in their win rate. It's not because green was becoming uh, less contested, but mainly because black became much more contested. So you might get onto the green part, okay, but you won't get those good things in black uh, that easily. Um, <clears throat> and then we still have Monk of the Open Hand, another white-red card. I mean, it's technically white, but I think white-red is the best home for it. Uh, Underseller Myconid, the three mana mana dork that brings some one ones when it enters the battlefield or dies. And um, the last two cards that are on the list, Devoted Paladin and Minotara of the Absolute. Uh, Devoted Paladin is good in white green, white red, uh, possibly some white black shells when uh, you go slightly wider. That's the 4-4 that um, gives your creatures plus one, plus one in Vigilance when it enters the battlefield. So basically, big brother of the Steadfast Unicorn, but uh, somehow Steadfast Unicorn is a way better card uh, because you can activate it multiple times. And then um, last is the Minathara of the Absolute, uh, the signpost uncommon for the white-black. So that's a slight hit for the white-black. I think some people were not up on that card. They didn't see its powerful potential. They probably had to face it once on the opposite side of the battlefield to realize that the card is really strong. Um, so these are the cards that um, are not as available as uh, they were in the week one. Now, you probably expect that I'm going to move to the next slides when I'm going to show you the cards that are more available, but no, I'm not, not going to do that. Cards that are more available, I look through the list and uh, most of them are just cards that are bad and people stop picking them. So information for you that something that is not really playable is more available is not of any use, so I skipped it. So I started thinking, okay, why would Boros be the one that takes the most hits? And um, I thought, hmm, maybe the double creature, double team, uh, double team creatures uh, were not as available and double team is so important for that deck. And I actually checked it. And even though <clears throat> those, um, those uh, double team creatures became slightly more contested uh, during the draft portion, actually white red plays more double team creatures in week two than it did in week one. Difference is not spectacular. It's like uh, between 3.7 average copies uh, per deck to four average copies per deck. Um, but it's definitely not the lack of double team creatures. There might have been qualitative changes uh, in, in them and uh, maybe you got the wrong ones. And I would venture a guess that um, you will probably see fewer of the two drop uh, double team creatures and probably because people figure out the double team is so good, you will see more of the more expensive ones, which actually are not that amazing. So um, that might have caused it, but it's definitely not by sheer quantity of the um, of the double team cards. And actually most of the uh, archetypes that realistically play double team creatures had a slight increase of those um, uh, in, 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 the, in the lists. Um, and as you can see, 
this is like an, a, a powerful uh, measure of what is available. White red has availability of the double team creatures from both colors, from both white and red. Um, and it has on average twice the amount of double team creatures as the uh, decks that only contain red or only contain white. So a nice confirmation that it adds up. Ability will be linked to how many colors uh, have particular uh, ability. Okay, so then I thought well, maybe there's something with removal. And here, because if we go back to which cards were uh, evaluated more highly um, in the beginning, we see at least that Patriarch's Humiliation is the important loss. Um, there was also Sewer Plague. Um, if you go slightly lower, there is the Methods um, something, uh, the two mana uh, red spell that deals four and creates a boon that the creature gets plus X plus O, where X is the additional damage that uh, uh, method, uh, methods, method something, my God, my brain is holy, uh, deals to the target. Uh, but you don't see big differences in terms, of, um, in terms of number of removal spells per deck. There is a slight drop in, in, in Boros, basically from 4.2 removals per deck to four removals per deck. But this is not super big. I also looked slightly deeper in it, looking at the win rate based on numbers of removal in the deck, and there were no clear trends there, so I'm not going to bore you with this data. So I don't think it's really also um, attributable to some kind of like meta properties of the deck. By meta properties, I mean number, total number of removal, total number of double team creatures. It looks like those drops in win rate are due to the absence of particular individual very important cards. Let's call them the keystone cards in the deck. And I didn't manage to identify them properly, um, unfortunately. Um, but definitely this is something that would be worth looking for in the future. Basically identifying keystone, this comes again from my work, and every ecosystem will have some keystone species. It's a species that maybe is not the most populous, most, not the most numerous, but um, is important for the ecosystem as a whole because it controls particular aspects of that ecosystem. Uh, so for example, it can be important food for the apex predators or, uh, or key predators. It can be also an important, um, 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 important creator of some kind of ecosystem service that allows other species to live. Um, uh, you can think about it like trees. Well, they do provide the whole structure of the ecosystem. Rotting trees provide um, carbon cycling. So some species of tree might be super important in the forest. Um, even though the more numerous ants are more, more numerous, for example. And I think that there will be some cards that are super important for a particular deck and slight changes in the number of, availability of, of availability of those cards will have a big knock-on effect on the win rates of those decks. But this is not uh, the um, only reason. But I think that Patriarch's um, um, Humiliation and the Steadfast Unicorn are particularly important for the white red and, and to some extent to white green decks um, because they provide very unique um, um, very unique service to those decks. So one mana removal allows you to put pressure and kill creatures at the same time. And Pegasus is, uh, the unicorn is something that can create early pressure 
uh, or go in for two three damage early and then in the late game it becomes a must kill uh, creature because if you go to eight mana you can generate board states where no blocks are good um okay but at least uh, from this we can conclude that the total number of um, removal per deck does not seem to influence uh, um, uh, the uh, win rates by a lot because we don't see much change uh, in archetypes barring small changes in black red and white red <clears throat> so this is a slide from the previous week uh, just to show you that um, alchemy horizons boulders gate is one of the fastest formats or it is the fastest format um, from any set in the recent history and it also has the highest disparity between being on the play and on the draw so basically, if you're on the play, you win 53% of your games. If you're on the draw, you win 47% of your games. So there's this six percentage point split between win rate on the play and on the draw when you normalize the data. And the games lasted roughly 8.8 .8 turns. And then the second set on that list, um, which is AFR and uh, Midnight Hunt, were around 9.1. And you know things like Strathaven were approaching 10. Um, uh 10 turns a game so big difference between those sets but first of all the duration this is an average number and average numbers in non-uniform samples are tricky to look at because when you think about this 8.8 .8, this will be a combination of the long and dirty games that ramp blue green decks have and uh, very rapid very aggressive games that uh, white red decks have so I'm all into going a bit more granular into those things and trying to look at, okay, we know the average, but how does it vary from the archetype to archetype? And this is exactly the, the, that list. Um, I ordered the archetypes on total win rate of, across two weeks. So this is the white black was the most winningest deck over the first two weeks. Blue red is the most losing deck. Um, and we see quite a quite a quite quite a variety of different numbers. So, uh, for example, white black will win on average with nine turns, and it will lose the games in nine point five. So it's probably a bit aggressive because the decks that kill faster than they lose are usually the aggressive one. Because if they kill, they do it fast. But if they get killed, you can't kill them super quickly because you need to first stabilize, and then. You can't even commit because probably your um, uh, your uh, life total is quite low, so you need to make sure that you're not going to die on a crackback by some high creature or something. Um, and this nine turns that's across that's around the average uh, speed of the uh, actual set. Um, now white red it kills in eight turns on average. That's super fast. That means that there's a lot of games that end on turn five, six uh, in those white red decks. And then if it dies, it dies also pretty quickly in 8.9, but it still shows you that this is definitely a proactive deck. If it runs out of steam, you, you can't still um, kill them very quickly because you had to spend a lot of time stabilizing against this ultra aggressive archetype. And, but then we have things like white green, which win on average in 9.2, uh, lose on average in 9.7. So the games gotta go much longer. Like, uh, you can see it kills in 1.2 turns slower than uh, white red, and it also dies almost a turn later than the than the white red deck. So this white green is definitely pushing the game into into longer stages. And we have, I think that if we look at it, we can say, sort of see 
We have three aggressive decks, uh, white, red, black, red, and red, green. Even though red, green doesn't have a phenomenal win rate, but it at least tries to kill relatively quickly. It just doesn't do it very well. And possibly blue, red, but I wouldn't count as a deck at all. Uh, and then we have a couple of the decks that are sort of mid-range to control uh, um, uh, range. So black, green, it uh, wins on average in 9.6 turns. So one and a half turns later than uh, white, red, much slower. It really wants the time to stabilize. It really wants time to uh, drop those linorms and then kill, um, to kill with those and uh, whatever. And we have the blue, black, which is similar. The only difference is that blue, black takes longer time to kill than to die which means that this is definitely a kind of controlish deck that its main problem is stabilizing, which it never, it, it doesn't always manage to do. Once it stabilizes, it will kill you, but it will, might have problem with surviving to that state. Although clearly something happened over the um, week, between weeks one and two that, um, that helped it ever so slightly. And we have the white blue, white blue is, um, really slow. So when you look at it, the 9.7, 9.6, this is sort of average speed of Strixhaven, the slowest uh, format that we had in the last year and a half or so. Um, so white blue is not the fastest deck. It doesn't die very early, but it also doesn't kill very early. So it doesn't look like there is an aggressive deck in there. It's just like a controlish, maybe slightly grindy, attritiony kind of deck. And blue green. Now this is the, again, the, same as with blue-black, this is a deck that um, has mainly problems with stabilization. It's favored in the longer game and it uh, wins those long games and the games it wins are longer, so it doesn't have that capacity of early onslaught um, uh, on the opponent's um, uh, uh, life total. But that's not all. Of course, we also looked at the game length, but we also looked at the play or draw win rate. On average, it was six percentage points difference between being on the play and on the draw. But I also calculated the win rates of on the play or on the draw for each individual archetype. Why is this disgusting fly here? Go away. And the first thing that should strike you is the chasm for white red between being on the play when it has 63.6% win rate and being on the draw when it has 54.4. This is almost 10 percentage points difference. That's way bigger than the average for the uh, for the format, which means white-red is going to be a bit more variance-prone. Um, I played a draft two, three days ago when I was on the draw eight games in a row. Eight games in a row I was on the draw. Needless to say, I did trophy that uh, draft, so kudos me, but it can happen. And if you play white-red deck, even if it's a good one, if you are on the draw five uh, times in a row in the first five games, you're very likely not going to trophy that draft. You're very likely going to actually go out um, uh, at that stage because your deck does not par deal particularly well with lack of initiative. And especially, I think, in that second week when you also don't get this early interaction that might even you know, let you flip from uh, being defensive to being aggressive, uh, on turn three, when you play your two drop and you kill their two drop and you swing for something and you completely change the game dynamics. Um, and black-red has a similar uh, problem where it's basically um, 
it's it's basically similar to uh, white red, um, uh, slightly slightly smaller difference. So a small Sam says that uh, turn one war color uh, cobalt wool color that is uh, on the play is much more scary than the draw. Yeah, and that's that's exactly it. I mean, the initiative for this deck is 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 do or die in many cases, especially that it's the most commonly drafted deck, so we will play a lot of mirrors and. If you're on the draw, then the opponent is on the play. There's no way around it. Um, <clears throat> right. Um, then white-black has a much more narrow difference between being on the play and on the draw. It's between 62% uh, win rate on the play and 56 on the draw. Now, this here we have the 6%. This is the average of the format uh, in terms of the difference between being on the play and on the draw. Um, um, and you know, sim similar thing, uh, black green. Uh, similar thing in uh, blue green, um, and similar thing in blue black. Uh, these are all the colors where it's sort of average uh, in terms of being on the play and on the draw. Now, white green is an interesting one. White green has only three point four percentage point difference between being on the play with sixty percent win rate and being on the draw with fifty six point six. This means that. If you want consistency in best of one, green-white is probably the place to be. Because yes, you will not win those drafts when you just be, are on the play um, uh, every single game, but you also won't have that big a problem with being on the draw all the time. So it sort of evens out uh, ever so slightly, and that should, um, that should help you with, um, uh, with, uh, with playing drafts more consistent results and, um, um, and, and, and getting your jams back. So that's, that's important to see. <laughs> It's also, white green is generally Mr. Stable in this format um, because it doesn't have a big difference on the play on the draw. It splashes very well. So even if you like dra draft a bomb in some other color and you have a couple of Myconids, you can easily uh, splash your bomb and, um, uh, and, 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 basically, uh, uh, and, and, and basically gain advantage from that potential. Also, thank you, Jairock. Thank you, Jean-Emmanuel, for the raid. I just noticed that I have way more viewers than I deserve, so uh, there must have been a big raid, and indeed there has been. Um, yes, exactly. It um, uh, White-Green can, can have this fast start potential, and also um, uh, it can go over the top. It can, you know, play aggressive early game, but it also can have a linear that's just waiting there to pounce on the top of the curve. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of White-Green. Um, I think that uh, it's probably the best archetype in the format right now. That's my opinion about it um, in terms of being able to be drafted consistently. There are several builds of it. I recently drafted the actual life gain combo because I started the draft with Prosperous Innkeeper into Prosperous Innkeeper and, and, and then picked a couple of unicorns and Trelasara and then some good white and green cards and I managed to, to, to draft the, to do the thing. But if you don't have the thing, I'm pretty sure you can you can still draft a very solid deck and uh, you can flip between being aggressive, between being controlish. So I'm 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 really singing praise of white green in this format. I think it's uh, uh, maybe slightly underappreciated in um, behind all the talk of the Mardu uh, color pairs, which are good. Don't get me wrong. I just think that white green is more um, uh, solid. I think what it lacks in explosivity, it it gains in consistency. And here we have red green. Red green, another deck that has a big uh, drop off in terms of being on the play and on the draw. 
Uh, it's 58% win rate on the play and uh, around 50 on the draw. So there is a, it's bigger than the, uh, than the expected gap. And white-blue is one of those decks that have a small difference, uh, uh, very much like uh, white-green. But unfortunately, small difference, and uh, it, it doesn't have a high win rate in general. So it's 55% win rate on the play and 51.5 on draw, uh, you know, averaging somewhere in the 53. So uh, it's like white-green, but without the good cards. And guess what? Because it has blue. Uh, so no surprises there. <clears throat> and blue-red, adding to its uh, lack of power, we can also add lack of consistency. 10 percentage points difference between uh, being on the play and on the draw. <clears throat> so probably it's better to be on the play uh, with white-red and mulligan than to be on the draw with eight cards in blue-red. So yeah, something to think about. Avoid that color pair if, again, if you can. So these are the sort of things about how to keep with the shifts in the format in the first weeks and uh, things that have changed. Um, uh, things that have changed over the first week. I hopefully highlighted them at least partially for you. But the second part of the seminar, I wanted to talk about a concept I introduced. 20 weeks ago or so, um, maybe 24 weeks ago, half a year then, half a year ago maybe. Um, and this is quantifying aggro-ness, mid-range-ishness and control-ishness of uh, decks by using the data from 17 lands. Um, and to do it, I used some maths, but it's a very simple maths that anyone can do. It's uh, I really like my methods to be simple. They don't have to be like dumb, but I'd rather not overcomplicate things. So uh, any of you, if you get on the public data sets from any set, you can actually re replicate um, uh, the calculations I did. I'm going to tell you more or less what I did so you can you can figure it out. But, but generally, uh, to discuss the concept of aggro control in mid-range, I need to define them in some way. And I defined aggro as decks that want to win as early as possible and shorten the game to the max uh, by uh, applying early pressure and uh, trying to uh, gain card advantage by not allowing opponent to play their cards uh, in the right order and in the right um, uh, time and never in some cases because you can't cast a seven drop when you're dead on turn five. So, you know, and then there's control. Control wants to prolong the game until your unstoppable engines take over. I mean, unstoppable used uh, quite loosely. I'm sure that they can be stopped in some way, but you definitely should have tools to have this inevitability late in the game that if you survive the early storm, you can take over the game and there is nothing that the opponent can do because they play their silly aggro and they have two ones and you have like nine nines or whatever. And there is the mid-range decks, which are able to play the long game, and they have something that will be, you know, give this at least illusion of this inevitability that controls have, but are also capable of explosive starts, which can take over very quickly. So they can play control against aggro because they have a better top end than the aggro does, but they can play aggro versus um, controls because they have a better uh, uh, better aggression capacity, and they are sort of ending uh, ending in the in the middle there. <clears throat> so, to try to figure out how I can figure out which deck is which, I thought about every card in your deck will have an impact on game duration if it's drawn of some sort. If 
you draw a card and you can't play it, it will have an impact on the game duration because that's like taking a mulligan. Mulligans have an impact on you losing much quicker. Uh, if a card is very aggressive, it will shorten, shorten the game. If a card is a stabilizer, it would turn to prolong the game. So can we use the card impact on game duration? Can we calculate it and can we use it to estimate the plan of the deck? And uh, to do so, I was focusing on one stat that is available in the uh, 17 lands uh, data that are on the public dump. Unfortunately, the heroes, uh, the, the uh, historic, uh, historic alchemy uh, Baldur's Gate is not yet available in the, as a public data set, I think, but it should be in the next uh, several days. So then you can look at the data from there, but you can take any other set from the public data sets and, 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 and play around with it. And one of the statistics in there is average game length which just tells you how many turns did the game last um, uh, on, 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 on how many turn cycles, I think is, is, is the correct uh, term in this particular case. How many turn cycles uh, did the game last? Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, and using that stat, I could basically try to link a um, couple of things and try to figure out if the decks want to be fast, want to be slower, and uh, how does it impact their win rate? Um, so there are several scenarios of the cards, like a card, and I'm looking at one particular measure, and that is the impact of um, having that card in hand on the game length of games that you want. So uh, basically, I can look at the, um, uh, at the um, game length of the games that you won with the card and games that you lost with the card in the hand, and if the games you won with this card in the hand are shorter um, than the average game and the games that you lost, this card will be speeding up um, at the wins. If the games that you won with the card in the hand take longer than the games that you lost, this card is a stabilizer, will slow down the game and it will let you win, uh, but uh, not by killing opponent faster, but by giving you time to find other answers, for example. So there's, Couple of scenarios of cards. First of all, when you draw a card, it reduces the game length of one games. And there are several cards that fit the description. Uh, it's good aggro card, definitely will make the game shorter. Um, good finishers in mid-range and control decks. Uh, so, you know, Imperial Oath is a great example, uh, is a great example because that card, when you when you played it, it well, killed pretty quickly. So actually it shortened the games. And uh, there are some bombs because bombs are hard to deal with also, bombs very often will lead to snap concedes, which shortens the game, uh, not necessarily because the game should have lasted less, but because I had I had Tasha in one of my drafts and I just played Tasha and if the opponent didn't think that they have an actual response to it, they just like snap conceded a couple of times. Because of course, I never played it in the way that it could die and plusing it makes it almost unkillable. Um, so yeah, sometimes I got snap concedes. And of course it will have an impact on the duration of the game. There are cards that when you draw them, it will increase the length of the game, of the games that you want. Um, and these are stabilizers. So maybe creatures that you play early and they stop attacking, like um, Shambling Gust, the famous Shagavan. Um, this is the card that probably prolongs the game because you play it on turn one and any aggro will just like look at it for three turns and not attack you, which gives you time to basically not die, start building your board, 
uh, start finding answers to the aggro creatures and 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 start uh, taking the game over because you know if you play against aggro you have this more controlish deck you every turn that you manage to survive every turn that you don't lose life is bringing you closer to winning the game because you should at least have this top end that will take care of the game um and there are sweepers sweepers um uh, not super predominant in this format but um uh but there is definitely a couple of cards that are sort of sweepers i think verdant rejuvenation is one of those cards that um well, basically are so powerful that they prolong the game because they um uh usually you play it uh, while being slightly behind and then all of a sudden you're very much ahead but there might be some board stalls so it will take some time but it actually prolongs the game by quite a lot if you draw it um and there's the three third scenario cards i'm not going to be dis uh, focusing on them that much but um cards that when you draw them it doesn't change the game of the uh, game length of the games that you win compared to the games that you lost and these are usually cards that are sort of pivotal. They can be aggressive, they can be defensive. They're sometimes strong, sometimes not strong. So they sort of uh, cancels each other out. Uh, so situational cards, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're there in the middle and they don't impact the game length. However, uh, in some cases, I think that uh, cards that don't impact the game length in a deck that wants to be quick are going to be slightly detrimental to the win rate. Um, uh, and they might be also detrimental to the um, a weight rate of decks that really want to stay for this long game. Um, but they will maybe be quite good in decks that want to play this doer mid-range role that wants to be sometimes aggressive, sometimes um, uh, defensive. So the cards that have the biggest difference in game length between uh, when you draw them uh, between the won games and the lost games, and again, here we have the negative values. But basically, this means that if you draw Tiefling Outcasts in a game, um, the games that you win when that happened are going to last a whole one and a half turns less than the games that you lost. So this is like the ultimate aggressive card, a one drop that can uh, become very quickly uh, uh, two to one creatures, um, which is absolutely mental. I think that playing that on turn one, uh, some decks are just possibly can scoop already at that stage. Um, so uh, yeah, Tiefling Outcasts, the most um, aggro of the aggro cards. And second place is Clement Novice Acolyte with the very similar numbers. This card also is a backbreaking. Uh, you play it on turn two and you have all of a sudden like everything in your hand is a plus one, plus one. Then you flip it very cheaply and it becomes a big threat that can bring some others. Uh, just, it just does everything, that card. Um, I had the pleasure of playing it in draft once and it was awesome. And then we have our first common, the uh, Cobalt Warcaller. So this is the card that you draw and it makes your games much shorter. Um, and especially I think that uh, I didn't calculate it for opening hand only, but in opening hand, uh, this card must wreak havoc because you play it on turn one and then since then everything that you will play will probably have haste uh, of some sorts. And at the end, it might even contribute to that last attack with one point of damage uh, without a problem. Uh, or if you don't have any play, you can attack with them. It, it, it does quite a lot. And similar um, similar results from Monk of the Open Hand. Um, then we have Lazel, um, the bomby bomb bomb, uh, four mana, two, four double striker that becomes a three, six double striker that is impossible to kill because it counters the, basically counters the first uh, removal that you play on it and stuff like that. Um, that card, um, well, um, shortens the game by a turn, 
Same with Katibri of Mithril Hall, even though this card doesn't have that higher win rate, so it shortens the game that this plays in, but uh, it doesn't win many of the games. It will lose quite a lot. It will be played quite a lot in the last game, so uh, uh, keep in mind that shortening the game is not everything. It's also important um, uh, to have a high win rate of the card if, if, if you can. And then we have a bunch of stuff, the Goblin Trap Finder, Battlecry Goblin, uh, Steady Pally, the Steadfast Paladin, uh, actually shockingly shortens the game. Uh, I don't know exactly uh, why Steadfast Paladin in particular is so good in shortening the game. And we have a bunch of those. Uh, we have a bomb in Wheel Pack Bound Duelist. So I told you bombs can shorten the games because they're just bombs, and this one really can uh, flip the board state on this back. Uh, Flaming Fist, Dust Guard, Bullskir, Tollkeeper, similar numbers, also shortened by one turn. Uh, these are two mana three ones that are really good in aggressive starts. And we have Methods Enthusiasm, and that was the name of the card that I forgot. And uh, Deal 4 that I mentioned before, also shortened by one turn because it's a cheap removal that lets you apply pressure while at the same time um, attacking opponent's board. And we have Kalein, a ramp uh, aggressive creature that also can make your things bigger, so it's sort of like a Poor man's Clement, uh, when it can give plus one, plus one to a couple of your creatures that you play later. And Trelasara, which when it hits early on turn two, and then you play some um, uh, Priest of Ancient Lore or something, can go out of control very quickly. So these are the cards that have biggest impact on the game duration. But of course, like a bunch of those cards were rare and uncommon, so I decided to also look at the best commons uh, in this um, in this uh, category. We already talked about Warcaller, Battlecry. Well, why is Battlecry Goblin? It's uncommon there. Um, Steadfast Paladin and Fleming Dustguard, we already talked about that. Uh, we also see Hobgoblin Captain. Shambling Gust was actually uh, shortened games, probably because it's mainly played in the Black-Red, which, uh, which is quite aggressive, and Black-White, which is also decently aggressive, at least can be. Uh, Patriarch's Humiliation, <clears throat> uh, another card that shortens games. Steadfast Unicorn, you come to the Null Camp, that's literally designed to shorten games um, as a card. Uh, Soldiers of the Watch, the, the double team creature, Dragon's Fire, all those things are quite aggressive. We have the Dragon's Fire, Sepulchre Ghoul, Valor Slinger, you hear something on Watch, which in this format is used aggressively. This is either deal five to an attacker or give plus one plus one to the team. I think that this is uh, used for racing quite a lot because it can allow you to attack, not caring about the crackback because you can kill something, or allow you to attack and blow out the opponent with a combat trick um, when there's multiple blocks involved, um, or just go surprise lethal if someone thought that they will stay at three by not blocking three creatures. And Genasi Rubble Rouser. Now notice that lots of those cards that impact the game length the most were also the cards when we go back to the early slides um, were also the cards that um, uh, were evaluated much more highly between the first week and the second week. Patriot's Humiliation was on the list, Genasi Rubble Rouser was on the list, Soldiers of the Watch on the list, uh, Cobalt Warcaller on the list, Sparkle Ghoul, Flaming Fist Dust Guard, uh, Monk of the Open Hand, um, all of those things were on the list um, of the cards that were evaluated by the community higher uh, in week two than in week one. Okay, <clears throat> now the cards that make the games slower. And uh, here we have a bunch of... Uh, I own, so here I had a problem, uh, because lots of those cards that make the game longer 
still don't win. Uh, and by that, I mean, there's bad cards. There are cards with, you know, 48% game and hand win rate with 51% game win rate. So I only looked at the um, uh, cards with over 53% win rate. And even with that kind of low threshold, uh, it was uh, had to go really far to find uh, enough of the cards that were slowing down the game. But we get um, Snowborn Simulacra, the uh, Mythic Rare in blue, that um, uh, basically conjures copies of creatures, of, of permanents that you targeted into your hand. If uh, you, you can do it with X permanents, and if the X is five, you can actually cast one of them for free. So very often it will be a seven mana spell that sort of costs you two mana. You draw five cards for two mana, and you put one of them on the board. Uh, because you will probably copy a five drop, maybe even a seven drop, and then you're in the uh, in the money zone. You pay seven mana for something. You get seven mana of creatures plus um, uh, plus four cards in your hand that are spells, which is great. <laughs> or lands. Uh, we have Eldritch Pact. That's the weird seven mana black rare when um, someone draws X cards and loses X life, where X is the number of cards in their graveyard. Still don't know how to use this card. I've seen it in some decks, and I'm Quite curious how that played out. Uh, it would be worth investigating. Um, but we have Earthquake Dragon, a card that uh, makes the game last longer. Um, uh, probably, probably because it just requires dealing with it at all costs. Uh, so when 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 someone has to uh, kill it, they will spend turns dealing with it rather than um, uh, threatening your life total. Uh, Young Blue Dragon. Um, uh, that's the best blue common, probably, or one of the two, three best blue commons. It's working towards prolonging the game because it fixes your draws early. You manage to hit your lands, which means you hopefully will be able to uh, deal with the early aggression and um, uh, so on. Um, there's a Centrum Awareness, which is an interesting card because it's a reverse sweeper. It basically forces, uh, it promotes you trading a lot. And um, after trading a lot, um, um, the life totals won't change that much. But um, then you cast a Centrum Avernus and you basically cancel all the trades and you can take over the game through that. Um, Trumpet Man. Oh, yes. Uh, by the way, amazing episode. I was just listening to it when I was preparing the, uh, uh, preparing the um, presentation. I was actually listening in the background your episode with Court of Calls. Um, which I highly recommend to everyone that is here. Uh, uh, just watch it. It was great. Um, but Trumpetman writes, my guess would be these cards change the way the caster of the card plays the game. It is true. It is true. Um, and it's worth uh, to note that all those numbers are based on averages. And uh, when we have averages, you will always have um, a deviation from the mean. And it will change a lot uh, by how the players plays. I think that the easiest example is um, you can play Shambling Gust as this enabler of aggressive decks, uh, and, and, and it is according to the average data. But I can also imagine that if you play it in black-green and if you want to use it as a strictly defensive creature that will allow you to uh, survive those early turns and will allow you to play that, um, 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 that um, high-end um, uh, bombs or high-end uh, big creatures, I think that then it will behave uh, in a very different way. This is like a metric I'm still trying to master and perfect. And because of that, I didn't go as granular into it as I would like to. Uh, 
but definitely I agree with the fact that it might be uh, dependent on both how you play and both in what context it's being used, so in which type of deck. So even the same player, but playing in a slightly different archetype or slightly different build of the same deck will um, uh, will change how the game plays. Um, couple of cards that I think that are important to, to, to see in here is um, uh, Kaga, the Shadow Arch Druid, and Cradle of Baldur's Gate. Relatively cheap drops with lots of toughness that can prolong the game, uh, but also played in the archetypes that specifically want to make the game longer. Um, so this might be uh, the answer to you that this is not only defined by what the card does on its own, this number mainly shows you how good this card is in doing it, but it will be defined in what the archetype wants to do as a, in, in total. And, um, <coughs> and that's really why those things are here. And then we have a bunch of um, yeah, a bunch of other things in um, Emerald Dragon, Ercult Elemental, Alwando, the, the Seer. I think that one slightly interesting thing is um, uh, it's quite intuitive, but uh, you know, intuitive things don't always get confirmed by numbers. Uh, but a bunch of the creatures that are um, uh, in this category will have a higher toughness than power, and uh, obviously the reverse is going to be true for the ones that are aggressive. More power, less toughness, shortens the game, basically. Um, and here I did the same, but with commons, and I took commons without looking at their win rate. Uh, so the cards that uh, prolong the game, um, contact other plane, uh, uh, the draw card, it has a bad win rate, but it prolongs the game. Uh, if you win the game, it's just that you don't win the game often. Timora's Invoker, now that card is actually looking at something maybe that you want to play more often in blue. It doesn't have like a spectacular win rate, 52, but for blue, it's actually not tragic in this format. And it prolongs the game nicely. It has a good top end reward if you manage to survive till then. That will hopefully allow you to get it run away with the game. And the three one buddy stops some things and trades with many things and um, um, at least neutralizes something. So two twos, it will neutralize. Two ones it will stop, and three ones it can trade with. So it can do some things. Uh, and I think the numbers for that are at least promising. So I would, if you were you know, experimenting with some blue decks, um, especially maybe rampy kind of green-blue, I think that it's worth giving it at least a shot. Um, um, I never play with it. Uh, but from the numbers, it sort of looks like it might be something. And this is Dragon Ball Looter. Now, this one has a much worse um, win rate. This Druidic Ritual, which actually has a half-decent uh, win rate that also prolongs the game, possibly by letting you use the, some of the self-mill to continue dropping lands and then maybe get back some important creature that will be annoying for the opponents. Young Blue Dragon, that's a good card. Uh, here we have Blair Follow Tracks, Lantern of Revealing, Charm Sleep, which has weirdly very good stats for the second week and Blue-Black, but I guess numbers are pretty slow, low on those, um, so um, maybe that's the reason. And some weird cards in Shocking Grasp when you find the Villain's Lair. These have also poor win rates, so don't look at them too strongly. Um, I think that uh, interesting is that almost all those cards are blue and there is Ambitious Dragonborn as the only green uh, creature. Uh, Invoker is the one free that uh, for eight mana can draw two cards. Yes, to Jordan. Um, uh, Okay, I have to hide this. Yeah, uh, so that's the one. It, it lines up very well with Soldiers of the Watch. It will also stop for a couple of turns, at least, the, the Genasi uh, 
Rubble browsers, and it will just trade with the other three ones because probably it's worth for you to trade the three one for a one three. Um, Ambitious Dragonborn is the only green creature on that list, but of course it doesn't prolong the game for much. Uh, the other green card is the Druidic Ritual in those, and the rest is just basically who is who in blue. Oh no, sorry, there's Follow the Tracks, that's also in green. But um, if you look at the... Ah, if you look at those cards, uh, there is at least some amount of things that uh, draw cards. There's the Contact the Other Planes, there is the Timor's Invoker, there is the Dragonborn Looter for that fixes uh, the draws, a bunch of ramp spells that prolong it because you might be able by ramping to um, to drop your big things er earlier and uh, and survive for longer, so giving you chance of going to your absolute top end and the bombs. So uh, something something to look forward there. But what does it mean? Like, is there even a point of prolonging the game? Because I was talking about yes, we can prolong the game. But being able to do something doesn't mean you should do it. Um, uh, something that every politician uh, probably should take into their mind. Um, so I looked at, first of all, which decks are which speed. Um, because we want to start uh, uh, well seeing what, what's going on, where, what I. And you can see that I divided decks in deciles. So 10% fastest decks between 10 and 20% second fastest decks, and these are the 10% slowest decks, and then and, and, you know you have the whole spectrum. And you can see that most decks in the first decile, so most uh, decks in this fastest speed um, uh, based on calculations I did, and now I just realized I didn't tell you what calculations I did. You see every of those cards has their number, how much it makes it makes the deck slower, or how much it makes the deck faster. So how much does it shorten the game, or how much does it prolong the game? I did a very simple calculation when I added up all those numbers from each deck and came up with the number for the whole deck. So if a deck has, I don't know, five Cobalt wall colors, that will be five times minus 1.15. And maybe it has two Soldiers of the Watch plus two times minus 0.73, I added up those numbers, I will probably come to something like minus 20, uh, <clears throat> adding up all those cards. That means that this deck has a capacity of shortening the game by 20 turns. Now I take some slow deck and I have Snowborn Simulacra and three young blue dragons, so I add those things, maybe it will go to the plus 10. So this deck has a total capacity of prolonging the game for 10 turns, yeah, if, you, if you imagine it like that. Um, so in the fastest decks, the one that has shortened the game the most, uh, in theory at least, almost exclusively white-red decks. Uh, there is uh, around 1,900 of them and roughly 50 of the other colors. So um, uh, well, basically, uh, this is the way to play the, 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 the fastest card is to play white-red. But as we discussed before, Playing this fastest deck comes with a punishment. So you will win on the play a lot, but you will also struggle winning when you're on the draw. Um, and there are slower versions of the white-red, the, the, the one in the second decile, even in the third decile, we will find some of the white-red decks. Uh, now the second fastest archetype is, uh, at least according to this data, probably um, white-black. 
but white black is not that dominant in the first decile it will be happening somewhere in the second third fourth fifth decile occupies the bit wider space of solutions so there will be quite a range of those white black decks from from like super aggressive to uh to more grindy versions of it like you know even some handful of slow white black decks so it's not a true mid-range it's more like an aggro tinted uh, mid-range deck then the first fastest black red so you see all the Mardu colors are, are, are on the aggressive part of the spectrum. Um, I think that uh, you can say that black red is just slightly, slightly slower than uh, white black. And it possibly has something to do with the fact that those um, white two drops are so aggressively tinted. There's so many three ones in this format. And if there are no three ones, then they are two ones with um, a double team. So practically a four two. Uh, so black red decks seem to be a bit slower but they are comparable with um, uh, with white black. And then the next one, I think that this is a true mid-range deck is white green. White green that doesn't have the most aggressive decks um, in this, on the spectrum, so not much in the first and second decile, actually nothing in the first, couple of them in the, in the second decile, but then they start to pop out and they sort of like dominate this um, uh, area of the fifth, the sixth decile. So basically halfway in terms of the speed you will find those white green decks and then we enter the realm of slower decks so um you see this is probably one of the problems with red greens if we go back by many many slides but we will do that um red green has a big advantage of being on the play uh, and not being on the draw so it sort of looks like an aggressive deck but actually the cards that it has to use are not so aggressive so it's uh, these are the cards that prolong the game because I think that green two drops are not particularly aggressive except for the null hunter. Um, because I don't know if the uh, red double team creatures play well with what green has to offer, which is like, well, big top end. So you've got this like weird version of a U-shaped mana curve when you can have lots of twos and lots of six, five, sixes and sevens, but they don't synergize very well with each other. And I think that this is the problem that it sort of tries to be aggressive without doing enough tools and it wants to be big top end, but also without enough tools for doing so. Uh, and it ends up not being a successful archetype because of that, because it's, this is the thing that actually Alex um, uh, was talking a lot in previous sets that white very often had, that white has half of the cards that are control and half of the cards that are aggro. And if that happens, um, neither of the strategies is viable and uh, white becomes a poor color. I think that this is the side problem with red green that red is so much more aggressive and, and and green is so much more grindy that those two colors don't mix very well and they create this sort of weird deck that just doesn't work uh, sufficiently and then we have two um slower mid-range decks so uh, black green and uh, white blue they sort of tend to be in those uh, lower um uh, lower uh speeds so seventh and eighth decile and the last three decks, well, two, let's start with the two, blue, black, and blue, red. Um, they want to be slow for a weird reason as people build them. Maybe there are fast builds of those, but maybe the cards that they have to utilize are just not very good in, in, in being fast. And blue, green, that's definitely occupies almost everything in this last 10th decile. Uh, so basically that's the opposite of white, red. Blue, green wants those long games is good in getting those long games and uh, and indeed does uh, get the longest games of all the things in the format, I think. 
because blue green well maybe with white blue but blue green uh, kills in uh, 9.7 turns in the fastest format in living memory so there we go but then i decided okay we know in which decile of the speed measurement each deck is but how being in a decile sort of um reflects on the deck's win rate so i looked only at the ones and you know small sample sizes here because uh, i had to necessarily use small sample sizes this is not a number of games this is number of decks let's uh, keep that in mind uh, so i looked at the win rates of uh of decks in each of those squares but of course i didn't want to look at the win rate of three decks because no uh, so i looked at least for 100 um 100 decks in in the, in the in the square and 100 decks will mean probably roughly like you know six seven games per deck so uh, 600 games in each square um then i excluded all the ones that were just didn't have those 100 games but one thing that is um relatively interesting in here is that you see that the faster versions of those decks have a slightly higher win rate and look White black from the first, from the second and third decile have roughly 66% win rate. Uh, and then from fourth and fifth, around 60% win rate. And then we go to 50% win rate if you make a white black uh, in the slower part of the format. This was not the case when I last did this analysis for uh, was it Crimson Vow, I think. Uh, so uh, this is something specific for Heroes of Baldur's Gate. Speed is the way um, it seems. And the faster versions of the, uh, uh, even of the slower decks are doing better. We see the same in black red. Fastest version of the black red, 66.8. Then it drops to 60, then it drops to 55, then it drops to 53% uh, win rate. So basically the slower those black red decks become, the less they win. So you want to focus on those cards that shorten the game because it seems shortening the game is still the strategy here. Um, and it's also the case in uh, something like blue-black, when there is a 60% win rate of the blue-black decks um, that are in the ninth decile and uh, 10 and 52 for the ones that are in the 10th decile. Now, there might be a very easy explanation for that, and that I told you that one of the categories of the cards that speed up the game is bombs. So if you have a blue-black deck with bombs, it can be actually a serviceable deck, because as I told you, those control decks want to have this inevitability and having bombs in your deck gives you the invisibility because bombs are hard to deal with. And uh, uh, if you are playing the long game to draw into your bombs and win the game like that, fine. If you're playing a long game to play some medium value creature, not fine because you're going to lose that game because the medium value creature is not enough to dominate the game. And aggro eventually grinds back um, uh, because you also start running out of cards to deal with all their threats. So keep that in mind. And we see the same in the black green um, that those faster versions of black green have a six percentage points. Oh my god, it's like I got attacked by a fly here. And, like, I closed the cat out for that reason not to get attacked, but a fly appeared. And red green decks as well. When you have those faster versions there, they have slightly higher win rate. Um, so I didn't want to do too much with it. I plan to do something more with, about it and, and, and try to figure out what's going on. But I wanted to at least look at, can I see some like cursory differences between um, between those faster versions of decks in one color and slower deck, uh, versions of deck in one color? Um, yeah, maybe that's an is it fly. Yeah, that's that's um, that's the Delver. Wait, 
mad scientist, a fly, insect abomination. Oh my God, it's going to, it's going to happen to me, isn't it, Fallen Shepherd? Um, so I wanted to look at least at one archetype and look at the fastest deck in that archetype and the slowest deck in this archetype based on that metric um, and see what are the differences between this deck. And because, and again, long travel back in time in, in terms of um, uh, slides, but I remember that there was a big difference uh, between win rate of the first week Demir decks and, and second uh, week Demir decks, which points me to the idea that maybe there is something about the Demir decks that, that, that you know you can make good versions of them. So I wanted to look at good versions of Demir decks. And uh, since I saw that uh, the slightly faster ones, they have actually 60% win rate. 60% win rate is something that I would be interested in having. Because 60.5, that's the same win rate as the win rate of white-red decks in the first week. And white-red decks were the top archetype. So I'm interested in seeing those. Not many of those, 380 decks, but 60.5, I take it. So what I did is I took the bottom 100 decks in terms of the speed measure and the top 100 decks uh, in, in terms of the speed measure. So 100 fastest, 100 slower. And I looked at the average number of each card in those decks and I sorted them by the numbers and, and then tried to figure out some kind of coherent picture. So first of all, these are the slower of the decks. I don't show it in this graph, but these decks had on average 8.8 .8 islands and something like 7.8 um, swamps. So they had an advantage of swamps, uh, of islands. So they were more blue than black. These are the slower ones. And these are the ones that don't win too much. <coughs> it makes sense that blue is not so good. So you will, um, you will uh, see more blue cards and, 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 and let fewer wins, basically. The top cards in those decks were Charm Sleep and Young Blue Dragon at one copy each. And then we had some Cradles of Baldur's Gate, Soul Knife Spy, uh, Wizard Gitzerai, Pseudo Dragon Familiar. So basically it looks like tries to be aggro with some tempo elements with Soul Knife Spy, but using blue creatures to push damage. And that seems not to be a great idea. There is Val, the specialized creature, Earthcult Elemental, um, uh, and Sewer plague, a plague and Clever Conjurer makes up for, you know, the cards that are over a half a copy on average in those 100 uh, slowest deck. And we have a couple of other cards later coming in, but they are Grim, Grim Bounty, 0.44 copies of those uh, of notable cards. Lizard for Librarians, which I think is not a bad card at all. Um, also around half of a copy per deck of those. So as you can see, it's slightly more blue than um, than black, and tries to do the thing that um, that um, Watsi told us we should do. So it has Cridles in the Soul Knife Spy, tries to attack, draw cards. Um, Pseudo Dragon Familiar tries to give flying to your things, so also they cannot be blocked and can connect. Uh, so we got that kind of stuff going on in here. <coughs> Sorry, before I lose my voice on the last slide. Um, now, it's a stark contrast when we look at the 100 fastest of those decks. Uh, here we had nine swamps and eight um, islands on average. So we definitely flipped uh, from blue being dominant to black being dominant. And top five cards uh, just basically confirm it. We have average of 1.3 copy of Guildsworn Prowler, average 1.3 Vampire Spawns, average 1.2 Shambling Gas, 
average 1.2 sewer plague and roughly one sepulcher ghoul and one grim bounty. So first six cards, all of them over one copy in those decks, black. Prowler, Vampire Spawn, Shambling Gas, Sewer Plague, Sepulcher Goal, Grim Bounty. Then only we have Soul Knife Spy, but this time not used with this um, uh, sort of cradle, gift flying kind of synergy. This time it's like, I play my good things. I play my Guildsworn Prowler. I trade with my Vampire Spawn. I trade with my Shambling Gas. I have a couple of removal spells. And then... Once I do that, I can play Soul Knife Spy and maybe accrue some value because maybe I outground, outgrind it, uh, the opponent, um, and um, it will have a, a, a paved path to, to, to connect. Um, we still have Cradle because uh, Cradle, I still think, is a pretty good creature. It's just like, don't overcommit to what Cradle is trying to do, and also don't try to build your deck around the idea of oh, I will connect with Soul Knife Spy and maybe accrue some value and I will go outside of my way to um, to make that sure that the Soul Knife Spy connects. It's just draw a card. It's 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 fine to draw a card, but I'd rather achieve it in those blue-black decks, it seems, by playing attrition game and then just dropping the Soul Knife Spy late rather than trying to drop it early and then going out of your way to make it connect so you draw a card while you're dying to um, uh, creatures that actually have a plan of killing you. And we have the dispute uh, under simplify, so then cheap interaction, uh, cheap draw spells, pilgrim's eye to sort of make sure that you hit your land drops. There's a bunch of splashing in this uh, as well in um, in um, uh, well, three thirty eight percent of those uh, decks will have planes, for example. <clears throat> yeah, thief's tool, uh, solid disappointment. Um, what is super interesting in is that these decks, 30% of them had a Tasha and Holy Archmage. And this is, I think, an interesting point to talk. Like, you shouldn't be probably looking to draft blue-black. You should have a good reason to draft blue-black. You should open a very good reason to draft blue-black. Now, Tasha is probably one of those examples. I, I had a Tasha deck before, and I ended on it because I started white-black, but white was deep-cut. And just, you know, last five picks in my first pack, there was nothing in there, but I saw some begrudgingly playable blue cards. There was the young dragon. There was um, the thing that gives minus two, minus O twice. Uh, there was something else. I just started picking those things without even planning to play them, but just as a bad hedging because there was literally nothing else that I would be interested in playing in those decks. And, and then pack two, I uh, opened Tasha and... Tasha is probably one of those cards that is worth um, uh, building around. Um, because I had a couple of those blue cards already, I could make it on playables quite easily. Uh, so, you know, late in pack one, it is worth speculating on the blue a bit. Uh, not going out of the way to do it, but uh, if, if, if the opportunity cost is low, you can easily do that because you might get rewarded in pack two by getting past some kind of solid uh, blue bomb. Oh. <clears throat> And hopefully you can see that the slower decks that have a lower win rate and the faster decks that have a higher win rate, slightly different. More bombs, more strong cards, more black cards, coherent plan, because black commons are coherent, unlike blue commons that are all over the place and probably don't do uh, that much. So um, uh, it would be interesting to maybe look at 
differences in the fast white red decks versus slow white red decks and what makes differences in the win rates there. Maybe looking at those fast assertive uh, white green decks versus those uh, lower win rate uh, white green decks um, uh, in the future episodes. But that is not the story for today. I think for today I am done and it's good timing because my voice is going as well. But before I go, I would like to thank again to my sponsor, mtgarenazone.com. Um, MTGA, MTGA zone. Is it mtgazone.com? Um, I would like to thank 17's land team, uh, um, which with great expense of their time and effort uh, provided me with the early access data for this episode because you can't get the game length data from, um, from the website. Uh, so thank you for that, um, especially uh, Ale Ballini, who works really hard on getting replay system and then inputting all the alchemy changes. So uh, kudos to them. I would also like to thank Fake Jake Brown, who is helping me to release it in the podcast form. I think from the last episode, due to my coughing and drinking tea, he managed to trim out 10 minutes of silence. So uh, in the podcast version, it might be actually bit more fast flowing because I just trim stuff out. I'm not like a corticals that can talk nonstop without any pause for uh, three hours. And talking about the podcast, big thanks to Mana Junkie and Asescu for the music that I'm using. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>